Today we're going to be in John chapter 6. And what did I call this one, huh? Back in the kitchen. Now for those of you who know me well, you know that I like uh, cleanliness with food, right? When you go to a restaurant though, quite often you don't know what's going on in the kitchen. There's a good reason that they have big walls between the uh, eating public and the kitchen. Kitchens can be scary places. They, can, uh, they cannot be up to my standards of cleanliness. Well, not too long ago, I was out to dinner with my family when it was one less. And we were, at a, we were at a fancy establishment, according to my middle son. They have balloons for after dinner and a mascot. And uh, while we were waiting, we were eating early, waiting for our food. The manager came in and asked me, if I wanted to go see the kitchen with, with my boys. I thought, oh, I'll go have a look at this. Wow! Cleanest kitchen I've ever been in in my life. I mean, pristine. Beautiful. They had the refrigerator as a room, and everything was so neatly stacked. There was nothing on the floor but shine. Countertops, beautiful. The, the chef, he was dicing nice on a beautiful countertop. Greatest restaurant in the world. I will go back there any day and spend a fortune if I had to, because I know that the food coming out of the back is perfectly prepared in a perfectly clean area. And I got to see the chef at work. And when I saw that chef working, I would eat that chef's food any day. Today we're going to go behind the scenes in the kitchen again. We're going to see the master chef of the universe preparing a feast that is unbelievable. We're going to see what makes that chef so great and how we can get a seat at his table to dine on his food. Okay, And I guarantee you this, when you get a look behind the scenes at the kitchen and the chef who's back there, you're going to be incredibly impressed too. We're going to do this today in, in John chapter 6, looking at the story of Jesus feeding the multitudes. Some Bibles say it's Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, I'll explain why I say multitudes as opposed to 5,000. I'll read it to you. We'll go into it and see what we can find in here. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After what? Remember last week, the verdict? Jesus declared who he was. He had his, he had his court case. Well, after that, he goes across. And a large crowd was following him because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, remember, Where are we to buy bread that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to eat a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the signs he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again 
to the mountain by himself. This is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Actually, I probably say that about 100 times a year. Let's see what's going on. So Jesus gives his verdict, his, his um, legal defense, remember? He called his witnesses after he declared he was God. He called God the Father, John the Baptist, the prophets, uh, I'm sorry, the scriptures. And he said, as we looked at last week, you guys make a verdict. Who am I? And after you figure out who I am, what do you do with it? Do you rebel or do you trust? And he goes into a crowd and says in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So what? Why does it say that? If I say to you, Christmas time was at hand, what comes into your mind's eye? It's okay to say trees and lights, come on. <laughs> trees, lights, snow, presents, all the accoutrements, a manger. You, you see thing at Christmas time. If you were a good Jew... And I say Passover, what comes into your mind? Food. Clean kitchen. Right, it's a clean kitchen. To get the yeast out of the house, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, how about the wilderness? How about some manna? Remember that? Where's Jesus going with these people at Passover time? A large crowd was following him. He was going out into the wilderness. And what was he going to do in the wilderness? going to make some food. Now, they tell you it's Passover time because Jesus is playing off of the Passover time. Say, hey, Passover, wilderness, huh? Let's go for a walk. You're going to be hungry. Remember that manna? Watch what I can do. That's what's going on. Jesus lifts up his eyes, sees that a large crowd was coming toward him, and he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Oh man, Jesus has a problem. Do you know that God is a God of tests? Did you know that? Do you know why God tests us? Because God doesn't know everything. Shh, don't tell people. If we don't help God out, he can't figure some stuff out. And the whole universe collapses. Which is why we need more people in this church, because we need more brain power, because if we don't have the brain power, it's all going to fall apart. Right? No. Why does God test us? James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. You can flip there if you like, otherwise I have to paraphrase it for you. We have trials or tests for strengthening and perseverance to grow into a more Christ-like nature. You want to know what it says word for word? Go ahead, Renee. Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And that steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's a pretty good reason for a test, isn't it? Not so that we can help God out, but so God can show us where we are and grow us into a more Christ-like nature. And Jesus says to Philip, where are we going to feed all these people? It's a math test, quite simply. I teach math to two little kids. And one of the things you teach when you teach math is selection of the proper mathematical operation. Let's see how good you guys are. Frank has seven apples. Mary has two apples. Ralph has one apple. How many apples do they all have together? What do you use to figure it out? Addition. Joey has three bananas. He loses two on his way to school. How many bananas does Joey have? What do you use? Subtraction. 10,000 people show up in the wilderness with nothing to eat. How do you feed them? What do you use? Multiplication. You're on to something there. When he asked Philip, how do we feed these people, Philip showed he was a, a statistical skeptic. And he tried to use the wrong mathematical application. He said, well, let's figure it out by addition. It doesn't wash. And Jesus smiles. He says, I know. 
So what do you do? What should Philip have said? We can't, you can. We'll get to the multiplication in a second. You jumped the gun, it's not fair. Then Andrew chimes in. He says, what does Andrew say? I'm sorry, the 200 denarii, we won't skip that. That's saying 200 days, where it's about a year's wage. Wouldn't pay. He's, he's looking at the monetary cost of feeding 10,000 people. And he's saying, we can't afford it. And Jesus says, I'm sure, looking at him like this. And then Andrew chimes in. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? When you look at that in the original Greek, it's actually a funny play on words. It's saying, it's saying, there's a little, little boy with a tiny, tiny barley loaf set and a tiny, tiny fish. It's playing on the little, little, tiny, tiny metaphor when you look at it in the Greek. So he's basically saying, we got a tiny kid with next to nothing. And Jesus says, perfect, tell everybody to sit down. Here's a mathematical operation you use. Addition and multiplication. What do we do? We add. What does Jesus do? He multiplies. Our job is to add what we've been entrusted. Jesus' job is to multiply our addition into a bountiful abundance. We're going to talk about the abundance in a little bit. In our lives, we run into problems sometimes. We can call them tests or trials. And we don't know the solution. Sometimes we think Jesus might have lost his mind when he calls us to some things because we're statistical pessimists. But our entire job is to just add. Add from what we've been entrusted and let God do the multiplication. Little boy, tiny loaves, tiny fish, 10,000 people. Doesn't work, does it? Not apart from some multiplication. Do you ever feel like you don't have enough to add for use? You ever feel like you can't really talk to someone about Jesus because you just don't know enough? You're just not equipped or prepared enough? Do you ever feel like you just you, you don't have enough talents to be able to do anything great for God? You know, like, what can I do? Nothing, right? I don't have any abilities. What can God use me for? You ever feel like you don't have enough anything? You know the story of the, the, the widow who drops her last two pennies into the offering box in the temple? Do you think, oh man, what, really? What's that going to do? What's that going to do for the temple? Two tiny little, little coins? The only thing you and I have too little of is too little faith. Because when we add what we think of as too little to Jesus' multiplication operation, kabam! When you add tiny barley loaves and tiny fish and 10,000 people get fed with leftovers, well, why am I saying 10,000? You said 5,000? If you look closely, it says 5,000 men. That's how they counted people. Well, the men had families, many of them, that had wives and children. We realistically could be talking about 20,000 people here. We'll say 10,000. We'll call it somewhere in between, all right? A little kid snack shouldn't feed 10,000 people, should it? A messed up Jewish kid like me shouldn't have any ability to impact anyone positively in their faith, right? Well, no, I shouldn't unless God wants to use it. Now, God can choose to, to stop using me at any moment. Hopefully, it won't be until I'm done today. If it's happened five minutes ago, I apologize. My job isn't to use my skill set to do anything. My job is to give God what I've been entrusted fully and say, you have it. Renee gave $8. What do you do with 8 bucks? I don't know. I just had this feeling that, that here's a great object talk. Give eight, I'll give her 20. Our addition isn't about cash to receive back in multiplication. Okay, that is not what I'm talking about in abundance. The job is, it, Renee didn't have the 10, she said, I have the eight. If someone says, I don't have any money, I have a nickel. 
go with a nickel. Jesus was not sitting there going, oh, shoot, 10,000 people. How am I going to feed them? And this kid's got nothing. He's got nothing. No! This is Jesus. Remember God made the manna that came down from heaven? Who's God? Jesus. It could have rained bread. He didn't need anything. But he said, folks, let me, let me test you so that I can teach you because I'm going to have James write something about this down the road. How are we going to feed these people? Answer is, we can't. You can. Remember that. When you run into problems in your life, the issue is you don't have too little anything to solve it. It's that you're trying to solve it and you're not trusting. We're not in the solution business. We're in the obedience business. Life's a lot easier when you live that way. God is a God of tests. God is a God of invitations. Here's something that struck me this week I never saw before. You might just shake your head after and be like, maybe you should never seen that before. It's not a big deal. I'll tell you what I saw. Little boy. He's got little food. Imagine you're the little boy. Jesus says to you, can I have your food? He says, he'll say, can I have your food? Give me your food, child. No. Can I have your food, son? What do you say? Nobody else has food. You're hungry. You got just enough to maybe, maybe fill you up until dinner. Jesus wants it. If I was a kid, I would say, I'm a good steward of what God has entrusted me to. I can't just give this away frivolously. I need to keep what I've been entrusted with by God and, and manage it well so that I may eat and use my strength to glorify God. <laughs> Stupid. That's what I would say. What would you say if Jesus asked for all of your bread and all of your fish? What's that? How much will you give me? Maybe that's part of it. I think sometimes we would say, no. Or we say, what's the bare minimum I can get by giving you? Can I give you... How about one barley loaf? Can you work with one barley loaf, Jesus? <laughs> Jesus wasn't needing the fish. You understand that? Do you really think he needed? He's like, Father, if this boy will give me the fish and the bread, I can do this. Please make him give it to me. Really? Why did Jesus ask the guy for his, the kid for his fish and his bread? Well, he was testing him, but he was doing something else. He was inviting him. If the boy didn't give his food, would the people have starved? No. What would have happened to the little boy? He would have missed out on something pretty stinking cool, huh? No? How many times in our lives do you think Jesus had asked us for the proverbial bread and fish, and we said, nah, I can't. I need it. You don't understand. And we've missed out on some amazing stuff. Jesus said to the rich young man, go and sell all that you have. Why? Not because the church was in need of cash. Because Christ wanted his heart. When Jesus asks us for anything, our whole life, for example, why does he do it? Is it to be mean? Is it because he's selfish? Or is it because he wants something awesome for us? But he's not going to give it to us until we're prepared for it. So when Jesus tells us to go and tell people about him, and we don't do it, do you know why we don't do it? Because we got a reputation to, to, to protect. We have a profession we need to sit in without affecting our income potential. We have neighbors we need to interact with. We don't want to mess them up. And what we're saying is, Jesus, 
you don't know what you're doing. You don't understand modern economics in the corporate world in America. You just, you don't get it. I, 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 I can't give you the fish and the barley. I need it. But not the kid. What does the kid do? You don't see it, but what does he obviously do? He gives it to him. How much? All of it. Whoa, all of it. You understand that? He didn't go off the 10% principle. Jesus, I'm going to give you 10% of my time, and I'm going to keep the rest. Think of it this way. I read it this week. I don't remember if I told you this last week. I think I did. It had to do with money, but it applies to everything. The question is not how much of our stuff we give to God. The question is how much of God's stuff we keep for ourselves. The kid had God's barley loaves and God's fish, and God asked for them back. The little boy said, sure, have it back. It's yours. And he gave it to Jesus. And what did he get in return? This much food to this much food. See what I'm saying there? For 10,000 people, too. The kid had just enough to get by. Jesus said, let me have it. And he's got a choice to make. Do I give it or do I keep it? You keep it, you're going to gnaw on some nasty barley and fish. You give it to me, you're going to eat good. But Jesus didn't tell him that. He didn't say, if you give me my, your fish and barley, I will give you back so much better. He didn't say that. He just said, can I have it? Well, guess what he tells us? If you give to me what I've entrusted to you as I call for it, I will give back to you so much better. Why do I say that? Well, Renee read the uh, Luke 6 passage. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. Remember the cheerful giver Christmas sermon? The beginning of it said, uh, I'm sorry, the, my mind has cramped up. Inexpressible gift. That's a cheerful giver passage. God does not want us to give him anything out of compulsion. We're, we're never going to have a, a capital campaign where I try to guilt you in to give him money. You know why? Don't need it. God, I'm going to let God work in anything. If we're going out on an outreach campaign, I'm not going to guilt you into to walk about Sunday, for example, or Saturday, Sunday. That was what it was. I'm not going to guilt anybody into knocking on doors. If God wants you to go, he'll prompt you. You respond to it. Across the board, God wants us to act cheerfully for him. Remember the flowers that Matt gave to Chris because he's just so happy to be married to her as opposed to it's just something he's supposed to do? When we get up and sing, you sing it because you're supposed to or because you want to? When you come to church, are you coming because you're supposed to or because you want to? When you're obeying Christ, are you doing it because you're supposed to or because you want to? God wants a cheerful giver, and I guarantee you this. If Jesus asked the little boy for anything ever again, oh, I guarantee you he's given him twice as much as Jesus asked for, because he saw what happened with the loaves of barley and the fish. But it's an invitation, do you want to join in? Jesus asks us the same thing. He invites us to the table. He invites us to the restaurant. He says, do you want to eat my provision? Sit down and trust me to cook. What are the ingredients, Jesus? Well, let me tell you. In this case, it's loaves of fish. Loaves and fish. In your case, who knows what it is? Maybe it's trusting him to talk to somebody about Jesus. Maybe it's a use of your time. Maybe it's trusting him that, that reading the Bible actually has value in it. Maybe it's putting in the effort to memorize scripture. Maybe it's uh, removing an idol or anything that you place your trust in other than him. It's an invitation. Do you want to see what he does with it? Or do you want to hang on to the tiny little fish and the tiny little loaves? Last thing. A God of abundance. Do you think of God as a God of abundance? Or do you think of God as something else? What's the Lord's Prayer? 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth that is in heaven. Next verse. Give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? For the day, right? What's the, uh, I want the keys to the bakery, though. Daily bread. When, sometimes in the past, I used to take this, give us just enough food to get us by today. Right? That's not really what it's implying completely. It's designed to give us security and comfort that God will give us exactly what we need moment by moment. But it's not saying God's miserly. One of my favorite books is about a little boy named Oliver. You know him? Oliver Twist. The room in which the boys were fed was a large stone hall with a copper at one end out of which the master, dressed in an apron for the purpose, and assisted by one or two women, ladled the gruel at mealtime. You know this scene? Of the festive composition, each boy had one porringer, and no more except on occasions of great public rejoicing, when he had two ounces and a quarter of bread besides. The bowls never wanted washing. The boys polished them with their spoons till they shone again. And when they had performed this operation, which never took very long, the spoons being nearly as large as the bowls, they would sit staring at the copper with such eager eyes as if they could have devoured the very bricks of which it was composed, employing themselves, meanwhile, in sucking their fingers most assiduously with the view of catching up any stray splashes of gruel that might have been cast thereon. Boys have generally excellent appetites, Oliver Twist and his companions suffered the tortures of slow starvation for three months. At last they got so voracious and wild with hunger that one boy who was tall for his age and hadn't been used to that sort of thing, for his father had kept a small cook shop, hinted darkly to his companions that unless he had another basin of gruel per diem, he was afraid he might some night happen to eat the boy who slept next to him, who happened to be a weakly youth of tender age. He had a wild, hungry eye, and they implicitly believed him. A council was held. Lots were cast. Who should walk up to the master after supper that evening and ask for more? And it fell to Oliver Twist. You know what happened next? The evening arrived. The boys took their places. A master in his cook's uniform stationed himself at the copper. His pauper assistants ranged themselves behind him. The gruel was served out, and a long grace was said over the short commons. The gruel disappeared. The boys whispered to each other, each other. He rose from the table and advancing to the master, basin and spoon in hand, Oliver said something. Oliver said, somewhat alarmed at his own temerity, Please, sir, I want some more. The master was a fat, healthy man, but he turned very pale. He gazed in stupefied astonishment on the small rebel for some seconds and then clung for support to the copper. The assistants were paralyzed with wonder, the boys with fear. What? said the master at length. In a faint voice, the boy Oliver replied, I want some more. The master aimed a blow at Oliver's head with a ladle, pinioned him in his arm, and shrieked aloud for the beetle. The board were sitting in solemn conclave when Mr. Bumble rushed into the room in great excitement and addressing them in their high chairs, he said, Mr. Limpkins, I beg your pardon, Sir Oliver Twist has asked for more. There was a general start. Horror was depicted on every countenance. For more? Compose yourself, Bumble, and answer me distinctly. Do I understand that he asked for more after he had eaten the supper allotted by the dietary? He did. That boy will be hung, said the gentleman in the waistcoats. I know that boy will be hung. When you pray, do you say with temerity and timidity, Sir, may I have more? Is that how you think of Jesus? Give us this day our daily bread. 
Are you afraid to ask him for more? Huh? I think sometimes we view Jesus as the man at the copper. Give us this day our daily bread, but don't ask for more. Give us just enough to get us by today and not a penny over. Because if you do, I'll whack you with a ladle. Guess what, folks? God's a perfect parent. When I serve breakfast in my house, I don't give out measly scoops of something. You know, the kids, oh, although they do this, I'm so hungry. <laughs> you had three bowls of oatmeal, two cups of milk, and yogurt. You're going to survive for an hour. I serve them plenty. I'm not going to let my kids go hungry if I can help it. When my kids ask for something, you know, come birthday time, what do you want for your birthday? Oh, sir, may I have one Pez? Half a Pez for you this year. No! They're not going to ask for a Pez. They're going to ask for something big. They might not get it, but they're going to get something nice because I love them. And I'm a perfect, I try to be a perfect parent. I'm not a perfect parent. I slip there. Why do we think God sometimes is wanting to give us half a Pez and a tiny spoonful of food to get us through the day and says to us, hush up now. I've given you enough to get by. Quiet. What does Jesus do here? He takes the tiny fish and the tiny barley loaves and he tells the people, sit down. And I guarantee you, if we were in that crowd, we'd be going, woo-hoo, man lost his mind. And he takes a fish and he gives thanks to the Father. And you're thinking, tea party, you know? We don't have them in our house. Maybe you guys do. The, the little girl tea party. Everybody sits around with the invisible, you know, with the cup with the invisible tea and the invisible food. And Jesus has lost his mind. You had to make the verdict, Lord, lunatic or liar. Well, I'm going lunatic here. Because he's going to have a sit down for a pretend feast. Everyone, pick up your invisible fork and eat the turkey. Mmm, isn't it good? So they're all sitting there, and you got some at least looking at him like, where is this man going? And then all of a sudden, whoom, how much food is there? He says to the disciples, three ounces per person. That's the best I could do. There are 10,000. I, I could come up with three ounces per person. No more. Tell me who complains. I'll smack him with lightning. No. He says, go out and give them how much? Verse 11, as much as they want. As much as they want. You understand that? As much as they want. And everyone took as much as they want, and a couple didn't get anything. Right? There was leftovers. God is a God of abundance. Now, there is a popular thing today called the prosperity gospel, which is saying that if you give money to God, he'll multiply your money. Or if God loves you, he's going to make you rich. Well, God must not love me very much. <laughs> the prosperity gospel is pure hogwash. Okay, The thought that God is going to give you money based off of you giving him something or his love for you, you're turning God into a genie. Okay? God, God is God. God is not a genie who does what we want. God does bless some people with extraordinary wealth. And they should enjoy that wealth to the utmost. Understanding that God has entrusted it to them. There is nothing in the Bible that calls us to a pauper mentality. That's ridiculous too. What God wants to do is bless us in ways you cannot fathom. It would make no sense for God to give someone like me 15, 20 years ago... $10 million. You know why? It's going to insulate me from God. But I'm ready for it now. 
God will give us what we can handle, and the blessings will be beyond measure. Now, money isn't a blessing or a curse. It's just a thing. It's how we use it that determines what it becomes for us. Just like everything else. A job, a relationship, a cash, cash value, anything across the board. God's saying that I want to give you so much better than you can imagine. But so often we say, oh. Anybody have $5? We're not doing it again. <laughs> we hang on to the $5 when God asks for it because we think that we might not get anything back. But I tell you this, sometimes we're afraid to ask for the abundance. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for an abundance of cash in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, I pray that you would give us an abundant provision financially. Ready for this? But I pray that we would use it fully for your glory. There is no way God's going to give you an abundance of cash if you're not prepared for the cash. But if your heart's prepared for the cash, well, he very well, may, he very well might. Okay? There's nothing wrong with praying for safety and health if we use it fully for your glory, God. Do you understand where I'm going with this? But don't think of Jesus as a miser. Don't be, first of all, don't be afraid to ask for anything with a right heart. Just when my kids' birthdays come up, they ask for the, sometimes the most ridiculous stuff. And I'll say no. Sometimes God says no to us. You know why he says no? Because he has something much better in mind. You know, if a kid says, can I go play in the busy street? No. I'd prefer you play here. It's much safer and you'll have much more fun. We don't know what you're talking about. Oh, actually, I do. We reverse the roles with God, though, don't we? Sometimes he says no. But when he says no, it's because he has something better in store. We think we know where true joy is to be found on our own. Guess what? We don't. We want to play in the mud. He's saying, come to the villa at the shore. But you've got to trust him to go. You've got to give him your life. But Jesus is no miser. Look at some of the things of abundance that God gives to us. Abundant love. John 3.16. You remember that one? Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is that love or abundant love? I think it's abundant love. How about abundant forgiveness? Romans 5.8. You know what Romans 5.8 says? Come on, we've got we to gotta break the gold off the edge of the Bibles. I'm sorry? Romans 5.8. I'll race you there. I have no sticky pads in here today. A lot of prayer. Yeah, I remember how I sang that months ago. For God showed his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Could we call that abundant forgiveness? John 10.10, we'll get there in about seven months. You know what that says? Jesus came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Romans 6.23 is saying roughly the same thing. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for what? Wholeness, prosperity, right? Abundant blessings. Luke 6.38, 2 Corinthians 9. Those are the passages we looked at today. We could sit here for the entire rest of the day. We won't. We could, but we won't talking about the abundance that God wants to give to us. You know how you get the abundance? You trust, you add, and you wait. Now, sometimes it might take longer than you'd like. These people sat down they got their food pretty quick. Sometimes a chef cooks a little longer. A souffle cooks longer than chicken nuggets. 
souffle tastes a whole lot better than chicken nuggets, doesn't it? But if you pull a souffle out of the oven early, what happens? Doesn't look real good or taste real good. Well, Jesus is a perfect chef. He's got a super pristine kitchen that he works in. And he knows just how long something has to cook to be just right. He knows how long he's got to prepare us to receive what he wants to give to us. And if we don't grow weary of doing good, in due season we will reap if we don't give up. But too often we either get too concerned to trust and give or we run away and try to take care of it, of our, take care of it ourselves. Maybe there was someone out in the wilderness that day who realized they had no food and they're far from home and they're watching the sun go down and they bolted. They wanted to try to get back to somewhere where somebody had food. Oh boy, what would they have missed? Maybe they asked another little boy for five barley loaves and five fish. Didn't happen. But assume they did and he said no and he left and he went back home and he was starving Marvin by the time he walked in his door. Oh, what he would have missed. But 10,000 people roughly had a feast in the wilderness. And they could have thought back to the manna that was sent down into the wilderness by God that appeared in the morning. And today they look behind the scenes in the kitchen. In the wilderness they had the food on the plate in front of them, but they never saw the chef working, did they? Today they saw the chef cooking. And what were the ingredients? Add a little bit of trust and a little bit of faith, and I'll multiply it into a feast you would not believe. And there will be leftovers that you cannot imagine. And you can eat your fill. And when you see the chef at work, you say, oh my. Now, not everybody said, oh my. We'll talk about that next week. But you say, oh my, and you will trust him so much more. In our lives, guess who we, we know? Guess who we can know? Guess who lives in us as Christians? The world's greatest chef. And he invites us to feast at his table daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Aren't you interested to see what he's cooking up for lunch? And what he's cooking up for dinner? And what he's cooking up tomorrow? Because it's never going to be boring or bland. It just requires some trust that the chef knows what he's doing. Because we don't always get to look behind the scenes and hear from exactly what he's serving next Tuesday for lunch. Sometimes we have to wait and trust that he's serving next Tuesday for lunch. And he will. But when we don't get a look behind the scene all the time, it's okay. Because just when I go, like I can go back to the fancy restaurant with the mascot with the beak and the balloons after dinner, I know they got a good kitchen to eat their food. Well, with Jesus Christ, I know the master chef of the universe knows exactly what he's doing because I've had repetitive peaks behind the scene, not just through scripture, but in my own life. So I don't have to worry about checking out the kitchen every time I'm going to eat. I don't have to worry about knowing exactly what he's doing. I can trust that his ways are better than my ways. I can trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. And then in all my ways as I acknowledge Him, He'll make straight my paths. And you know where those paths lead? To daily feasts and to an eternal banquet that you cannot believe. Because one day we get to sit down face to face with a chef of the universe if we love Him. And we're going to have a feast that, that blows the manna in the wilderness out of the water. It blows the, the, the fish and barley out of the water. We're going to sit in His presence and dine with Him. We're going to spend eternity with him being more and more amazed by how incredible that chef really is. So, there's a little peek in the back of the kitchen. little peek behind the scenes. Who is Jesus? He's a God of tests. When you face a test in your life, don't freak out. It's not because he needs us to figure it out. Smile when you face a test. You know why? Because just like here with Philip, he says to Philip to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Whatever you're going through in your life, he knows what he's going to do.
He's not looking for the input. He's saying, let me show you where you are in your walk. Let me strengthen you and grow you, and grow you into a more Christ-like nature. So don't freak out with the test. Smile. You've got a growth opportunity. comes with growing pains, but you've got a growth opportunity. He's a God of invitations. Jesus could say, you know what, I died on the cross to forgive you for your sins. You guys wallow in this misery and mire till you die, and then you can come to heaven. It's not what he said. He says, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. I will give you abundant life full of blessings that you could not imagine. Notice, when I say you can't imagine, it means you're not thinking about them right now. Because he, know, he knows so much better than we can know what we need and what we'll find joy in. But he invites us, we have to accept the invitation. It's a trust. And then after that, we get to find out that God is a God of abundance. <coughs> Wild abundance. Extravagant abundance. You know, we did the whole series on the prodigal son. And remember, it was more properly titled the prodigal father. Prodigal meaning someone who gives away abundantly and extravagantly. And we think of the son giving away abundantly and extravagantly what the father gave to him as an inheritance. The real prodigal is the father. The real prodigal is God because he gives away crazily. He gives away abundantly beyond our measure. Crazy isn't the right word for God. I apologize. Awesomely works better. But in order to receive what he wants to give away, folks, we've got to give him what he calls for. We've got to trust him more fully and we have to know him more clearly because as we do, you're going to come back and eat time and time again and you're going to invite people to the restaurant. I can't tell you how many people I've invited to the restaurant with the balloons because the kitchen is so fine. Well, think how many people you're going to invite to come and dine with you at Jesus' table because the chef is so awesome. And the invitation is open all, and that just blows your mind. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the, the fact that you have captured this historical event in your word for all time. I thank you for the fact that that as Jesus walked out into the wilderness that day, he knew what he was going to do. I thank you for the fact that, that so many people followed, and that you were in a position where it was impossible to feed so many apart from a miracle. God, I've heard people talk of this story as, as uh, Jesus motivated people to, to share their food with one another as they saw this little boy. Nonsense. God, we know if Jesus is nothing more than a motivator, we might as well worship Oprah. Jesus is, Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. He is as real as real can be. And God in the flesh walked out in the wilderness and provided a bountiful, bountiful feast for these people. And God, I know Jesus came down and lived in the wilderness of this world so that people like us can feast on the bread of life, so that we could have life beyond measure, not necessarily the life we want, but the perfect life you've prepared us for, which is preparation for eternity in your presence. God, I thank you for the fact that you will not just give us enough to get by, but you will give us more than we can imagine to perfectly grow us in our faith, to help us know you better, to trust you more. But God, I also understand it all begins with the trust part, with the acknowledging who you are, who you are as Lord and Savior, and then deciding whether we're going to rebel or trust. When you ask for the fish, do we rebel and hang on tight? Or do we trust that even though it makes no sense from our perspective, you know what you're talking about? And God, we can only trust through your strength and your power. And I pray you would enable us to do that in more and more areas of our lives so that we could just be floored by what you do. I pray that in the, the weeks and years ahead, before church when we talk about what God's up to, we would share the stories along the lines of a feeding of a multitude in the wilderness. How you provided for us in amazing ways. How you used us in amazing ways. Because God, that invitation is open in so many areas. And I thank you for that. 
God, I just I plead for forgiveness for the times that I have failed to trust, and I thank you for the fact that you forgive completely through Christ. I thank you for the fact that you're a God of second and third and fifth and tenth chances. But I also know that, that the, the time is short. We never know when you're coming back, or we never know when our last heartbeat is. And for those of us who, who struggle with understanding who you are or accepting it, I pray you would, you would bring clarity to us. And for those we know who have, who have yet to come to faith, people who live one heartbeat away from hell, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would use us in the process to let them know how much you love them, how awesome you are, and how perfectly you will care for them for now and forevermore. We pray all these things in the precious name of of the great chef of the universe, Jesus Christ. Amen.